أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وآله الطاهرين السلام عليكم ورحمة الله Dear brothers and sisters and welcome to session number 22 of the A Lesson Per Page Quran program Inshallah today we will be beginning with page number 94 of the Holy Quran Sorry, this excuse isn't accepted. So uh, on the day of judgment, of course, though there are going to be people who didn't live up to what they were supposed to live up to. And every person is going to be looking for an excuse to get out of the punishment, get away from the punishment. And uh, there will be people who will have an understanding of what excuses are accepted and not. And so they will bring those up on the Day of Judgment according to verses of the Qur'an. Now, will these excuses always be accepted? No, they won't. Although they might seem like they're excuses, but that person actually who is bringing the excuse um, had slacked off, hadn't taken things as serious as they were supposed to. And so these people will go straight into uh, the hellfire as the Qur'an tells us. Let us recite some verses and talk about this. This is a very, very important uh, discussion and there are some important points uh, in the lesson we're going to take away from this page, page number 94. Verses 97 to 99 of Surah An-Nisa on page 94. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem Innal ladhina tawaffahum al-malaikatu zalimi anfusihim Qalu fima kuntum Qalu kunna mustadhafina fil ard قَالُوا أَلَمْ تَكُنْ أَرْضُ اللَّهِ وَاسِعَةً فَتُهَاجِرُوا فِيهَا فَأُولَئِكَ مَأْوَاهُمْ جَهَنَّمْ وَسَاءَتْ مَصِيرًا إِلَّا الْمُسْتَضْعَفِينَ مِنَ الرِّجَالِ وَالنِّسَاءِ وَالْوِلْدَانِ لَا يَسْتَطِيعُونَ حِيلَةً وَلَا يَهْتَدُونَ سَبِيلًا فَأُولَئِكَ عَصَى اللَّهُ أَنْ يَعْفُوَ عَنْهُمْ وَكَانَ اللَّهُ عَفُوًا غَفُورًا Indeed, those whom the angels take away while they are wronging themselves. So this person, it's the time for their death has arrived. And so the angels are taking him. So that's what is, what, what is meant when it says the angels take away. The angel is taking away this person, meaning what? The time for their death has arrived. And they are leaving in a state of ظالمي أنفسهم. Meaning what? That they are wronging themselves. Meaning what? meaning that they were in disbelief when they left. They left in a state of kufr. They're dying in a state of kufr, okay? So, it's talking about this, uh, this part of a person's life where they are leaving this dunya as a kafir and the angels are involved in taking that person's soul. A little conversation takes place here. They ask, these angels ask that person, what state were you in? Right, so you're leaving... This the world, you're leaving the dunya in a state of kufr. Why? What state were you in? What's up with you? Why are you in this state of kufr? These people will respond, they'll say, we were abased in the land. Meaning what? Meaning we were weak, we were lowly. We couldn't do anything when it came to uh, uh, embracing the faith and uh, doing the right thing and so on. Why? Because we were in a land, we were... Li living in a place where 
There were others that were superior to us. There were others who were controlling us. There were others who were forcing us to remain kafir and not be able to practice our religion. Okay, so that's our excuse. These people understand that this is this is an excuse that they can use, right? These angels are going to respond now to this excuse that they bring. Was not Allah's earth vast enough so that you might migrate in it? So you were stuck. We understand you. Um, you um, had no choice, it seems, but you had one choice, and that was to leave the place where it doesn't, where they don't give you a choice. Right? You were living somewhere where you have no choice when you're there. But you did have the choice to change the place that you were in that didn't allow you to have a choice to practice your faith or not. You see what I did there with those words? Okay. You, you could have at least left that place and gone somewhere else. Why? Because God's earth is vast. There are different options that you could have had. The refuge of such shall be hell and it is an evil destination. These people are going to end up in the hellfire. Their excuse, in other words, is not accepted. Now, there is an exception. There are going to be some who have no choice because of where they live. And there are people who use force over them, who control them, who threaten them if they are going to practice their faith or if they're going to embrace the faith. Okay, these people they also are weak to the extent that they're not able to figure a way out of that land that they're living in. It's just not possible for them. Okay? Something like that. Or they just don't have what it takes to understand what the true path even looks like. So I'll get into some of these details as we go into the, the discussion. These people, the verse says, maybe Allah will excuse them, for Allah is all excusing, all forgiving. Please note, it says maybe Allah will excuse them. Although their excuse is a proper excuse, there's still conditions, our, our scholars have said. And if those conditions are met, then okay. Uh, you were in a land that didn't give you a choice to practice your faith, to embrace the faith, or whatever it is. Okay, And you weren't able to leave, and there's other conditions that, were, that you met. And so as a result, Allah will forgive and excuse. But other than that, it's not like Allah is going to, Allah created all of this universe and you and I, for us to get ourselves in trouble by, you know, using the smallest excuses to just not practice the faith. No, that this uh, God didn't create all of this in vain. He wants it to yield the result of faith by us. And so the, the excuses that some might bring has to re have to really be excuses. If they're not excuses, then we're in trouble. Now, I went through some of these points that you know are regarding in regards to this uh, this verse. Number one, that they understand that this is an excuse that they can use. If you're forced, I mean, we all know if someone forced, if if someone puts a gun to your head and says, "Break your fast in the month of Ramadan," it's not like Allah's going to hold me responsible now for breaking my fast to the extent that I'm going to have to uh, go to hellfire as a result of breaking my fast. No, I was forced. Everyone knows when you're forced that, you, um, that you're excused. But sometimes the matter is such an important matter that you need to take precaution. You need to make sacrifices so that that situation doesn't come up. 
or that you avoid or evade and leave and flee from that situation. In this case, the Muslimin during the Prophet's time, a time came when they were it was wajib on them to migrate from Mecca because in Mecca they were being persecuted. They were not being allowed to practice their faith and be Muslim and so on. And so in the beginning, you know, they were being hurt, they were being tortured. But a time came where, you know, it's time to move now. And so they have to move. And there were some who didn't want to move. It's not easy, of course, when you are leaving your home where you've been for, for the longest time and where you've been raised to leave all of that behind and go to another city or state or country that you're, you're almost not familiar with anyone there. But sometimes the reason to do such a thing is so important, so significant, that it becomes wajib. So for example, if a person, the only way they can have a halal living is to move from, where, from the city that they're in to another city, then it becomes wajib for them to move. Why? Because if you stay in your own city, although you love it so much, but you are going to have no choice but to start stealing to take care of yourself, so now you're stuck between a haram and wajib. Stealing to, in order to survive, right? Or moving to another place where you have a halal life living and you're surviving. Okay, of course, I mean here the intellect, the mind understands, the aql understands it's time to move. That's for normal things even, not let alone if your entire faith depends on it. If your entire faith depends on it, then of course it's going to be wajib, especially in the beginning during the time of the Holy Prophet these commands were very important commands. They were, it was wajib on them to migrate. And so if they stay behind, and as a result, the oppressors of the land that they are in force them to be mushrik, on the day of judgment, they can't come out and be like, or, or excuse me, when the angels are coming to take their souls, they're gonna, they can't be like, uh, oh angels, you know, we lived in a place where we were oppressed. No, you were supposed to move, make a sacrifice and move, although it's not easy. But eternity and infinity of the Akhirah is worth it. So why not? So you have to migrate. And this is where this whole idea of At-Ta'arrub al-Hijrah comes into the picture as well. It is super important. Some people, they move from Muslim countries to non-Muslim countries and they make themselves prone to the fact that they can't practice their faith the way they would want. Here, the, mar the maraja, based on the... Um, hadiths that we have, they say it's you have to go back. You can't come to, you can't go to a place where your faith is now going to be in trouble. It's going to be, it's going to be prone to corrupt, being corrupted. Yes, so this is where all of this comes. These are all based on something that we all understand. This is not, this is not rocket science. If the most important thing is my faith, I have to do my best to preserve it. Yes, if I can't because of the extenuating circumstances that I'm in, that's a different story. But all in all, to the extent that you're able to, you have to take the steps, make the sacrifices. This is not a fiqhi rule. Oh, I'm stuck in the desert, you know, um, let me, you know, just eat something haram so that I can survive. Yeah, in those cases, it's, it's fine because you want to preserve your life and all of that. But if you, if your faith is in danger, that is the first and foremost thing that you need to take care of. All right, so that is the rule, brothers and sisters, right? That was the rule that we get from verse number 97. But verse number 98 makes an exception. There are some who will not be able to move or are not able to identify 
the truth. They are mustadaf. They are mustadafina min ar-rijal nisa of the women, of the men, of the children, that they don't have the means. Sometimes you just don't have the means to move. Okay? Or you don't have the means of identifying the true path. This is a very, very important concept here, brothers and sisters. The concept of istidaf. Those who are mustadaf. If a person is mustadaf in this, in this sense, that they just don't have لا يستطيعون حيلة ولا هم ولا يهتدون سبيلا They don't have the means or they don't just can't figure out the right path, I guess. Then that's a different story. Okay, this is an exception. So verse number 97 used the word مستضعفين, right? When the angels were taking these people's lives and their souls, these people said, we were مستضعف. The answer was, who cares if you were mustad'af, meaning you were weak. The only mustad'af that's off the hook, the only istid'af that an exception is made for is if you don't have the means for it. You just cannot migrate no matter what. Uh, or you just don't have what it takes to la yahtaduna sabila. Yes, my understanding and take on this is that you just can't figure out what the true path is. It does not reach you. The hujjah is not finished upon you, is not complete upon you, then in that case, all right, an exception can be made and inshallah will be made. So let me share with you this hadith. It says, وَلَا يَقَعْ إِسْمُ الْإِسْتِضْعَافِ عَلَى مَنْ بَلَغَتْهُ الْحُجَّةِ فَسَمِعَتْهَا أُذُنُهُ وَوَعَاهَا قَلْبُهُ The Imam here, he says that if you want istidaf to apply to a person, Yes, it will not apply to the one that the hujja has reached that person completely. So the truth has reached this person to the point that they have no more excuses. If, you, if the truth has reached you, right, and you are sure of it now, your ear has heard it, and your heart has taken it in, and yet you still don't embrace it, then this istidaf doesn't apply to you. In other words, if the truth hasn't reached you the proper way to be convincing enough for you, to the point that it's as if your ear hasn't heard it or your your heart hasn't taken it in, then you're, you should be fine according to this hadith. And I feel that this hadith go, is in line with this verse that we are discussing right now. So brothers and sisters, we're not going to, in Sunday school for example, we're not going to teach our kids anyone who's non-Muslim is going to go to the hellfire. No, no, no. If they're mustad'af, it's a different story. In this day and age, true, there's all this information people have access to. But with more access to information, there's more access to misinformation. Very easily put. I think uh, you all will agree with me on this. Alright, so there will, be, there will be so many attacks on Islam, so much misrepresentation of Islam by people who are extreme and extremists. People who are not learned, people who are just explaining Islam and representing it based on whim and conjecture and, and just lack of knowledge and ignorance. Okay, so what, what, what can you expect if this is the case? What you can expect is Islam and you know mention of Islam will be made and messages of Islam will reach people out there. But then they see all of the discrepancies, they'll see all of the misrepresentation as well, and they won't be convinced that Islam is the truth. Can we 
confidently say, oh, this person is not Muslim, so they're going in the hellfire. No, no, that's God's job, brothers and sisters, to judge, not you and I. And so this is where people like Allama Tabatabai, they say some interesting things about how if a person really tried to find the truth and found the truth in other than Islam and they really felt like this is what God makes God happy and this is what God's satisfaction lies in, you can't say that they're, they're not going to make it. Right? So that is something to keep in mind. This is a very important verse of the Qur'an. Of course, we have to be careful, brothers and sisters, that, look, just because the concept is there, doesn't mean we can just go and randomly now and indiscriminately apply it to everybody and say, everyone's off the hook because they're mustad'af. No, 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 no. You have the concept of istid'af, but then you have the opposite of it as well, that those people who istid'af doesn't apply to. Even if, let me give you an example, even if a person is, you know, just lying at, down at home, right, and it crosses their mind, like, what if Islam is the truth? But then they're like, you know what, Netflix has this nice show on right now, let's just watch that. Uh, not in the mood right now to look into Islam. Whoa, whoa wait a minute, wait a minute. Islam, <laughs> the Islam that you heard of, spoke about an akhirah, an, an afterlife, that if you, that if you spoil, you're going to be in big trouble. So that should be enough for you to get off your back and look into and research into this faith and to become 100% sure that it's the truth either or not the truth 100%. And then if, you, if you're convinced it's not the truth, okay, different story. Alright, go watch your Netflix, right? But if you're convinced that it's true, then you embrace it. And if you're 100% if you're sure that it's not the truth, then you're good, fine, whatever. You'll have, a, you'll have an excuse maybe on the Day of Judgment before Allah. I'm not the one to decide, that's Allah to decide. But you have to reach 100% this or that. You can't just stay in between and be like, I don't know, so let me just get, get on with my life. No, 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 no. That itself is enough to not, have, not allow you to have an excuse on the Day of Judgment. Brothers and sisters, these are things that are very important. So we're not going to go too loose in applying this concept, but we're not going to be too strict either. In the end, the judgment is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Which brings me to this last point here in regards to this super important page of page 94, which as you can tell, I am spending a little more time on it because of its importance, because this is a rule that we need to establish. This is a key verse or a key page of the Qur'an. Speaking of excuses that don't get accepted, I want to share this hadith with you. I like it a lot, um, and we have others that might be similar in wording. We might have other hadiths that are similar in wording to this one. It says, إِنَّ اللَّهَ تَعَالَى يَقُولُ لِلْعَبْدِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ عَبْدِ aliman on the day of judgment, when Allah is uh, speaking to his servant, and he says, Were you not alim? Meaning what? Were you not knowledgeable of certain things that you were supposed to do when you were in that life of the dunya? If this person says, Yes, I was I was aware. I had knowledge of things, yes. Why did you not? Uh, amilt or amalt, uh, I think it's amilt. Why did you why 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 did you not act upon that which you knew then? That's if he answers yes or she answers yes. I was aware. <clears throat> no excuses there. What in kana jahilan? But what if the person says I was jahil? I didn't know. <clears throat> Will that be an excuse? Because we all know. We talked about this before as well. Um, ignorance sometimes can be can. Not always, but can be an acceptable excuse. There are conditions to it, of course. 
Uh, one of the main ones being if it's not our shortcoming that we're ignorant of something. But anyway, this seems to be an excuse, ignorance, right? Well, why didn't you go learn so that you could have acted? In the end, brothers and sisters, we are here for the fruit of amal. Allah wants actions from us. So we embrace the faith, we have the proper beliefs, and then we act upon our belief. The fruit of creation is ubudiyyah. My understanding of this is ubudiyyah. And not just me, of course, other great scholars as well. Um, and so, if that's the fruit, Allah is going to try. He's going to hold us responsible. If there was the slightest chance that we could have, we could have yielded this fruit, but we just didn't. So you're 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 claiming ignorance. Fine, but couldn't you have gone and learned so that this ignorance was wiped out? So as a result, you could have acted, brothers and sisters. This creation, this universe, is not in vain. Allah didn't create it. So that a bunch of us can go on the Day of Judgment because we slacked off and just be like, oh, we didn't know. No, 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 no. I'm not going to create everything for you to just have an excuse of, I didn't know. I want results. And the results are the best for you. I want the best for you. All right? So, excuses sometimes, they're not going to work on the Day of Judgment. At the end of the day, if we can be held accountable 10% even, Allah will hold us accountable at least 10%. If we can be held accountable 50%, that's 50% accountability. We have to be very careful, brothers and sisters, <clears throat> on when it comes to the excuses that we might want to have. Page number 95 of the Holy Qur'an speaks about, of course, one of the most important teachings of Islam, one of those most important actions of Islam um, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to be yielded from um, this creation, this universe of ours, and that is Salah. Alright, so Salat is of the utmost importance, and because it is of the utmost importance, there are no off days for it. So no off days when it comes to the prayer. Now, on page 95, uh, we have a particular situation that the Qur'an speaks of from which we can derive the utmost importance of the prayer. Okay, so let us recite those um, verses and then discuss them. This is verses 102 to 103 of Surah An-Nisa. وَلْيَأْخُذُوا أَسْلِحَتَهُمْ فَإِذَا سَجَدُوا فَلْيَكُونُوا مِنْ وَرَائِكُمْ وَلْتَأْتِ طَائِفَةٌ أُخْرَى لَمْ يُصَلُّوا فَلْيُصَلُّوا مَعَكَ وَلْيَأْخُذُوا حِذْرَهُمْ وَأَسْلِحَتَهُمْ وَدَّ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَوْ تَغْفُلُونَ عَنْ أَسْلِحَتِكُمْ وَأَمْتِعَتِكُمْ فَيَمِيلُونَ عَلَيْكُمْ مَيْلَةً وَاحِدَةً وَلَا جُنَاحَ عَلَيْكُمْ إِنْ كَانَ بِكُمْ أَذًا مِّنْ مَطَرٍ أَوْ كُنْتُمْ مَرْضَىٰ أَنْ تَضَعُوا أَسْلِحَتَكُمْ وَخُذُوا حِذْرَكُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ أَعَدَّ لِلْكَافِرِينَ عَذَابًا مُهِينًا فَإِذَا قَضَيْتُمُ الصَّلَاةَ فَاذْكُرُوا اللَّهَ قِيَامًا وَقُعُودًا وَعَلَىٰ جُنُوبِكُمْ فَإِذَا اطْمَأْنَنْتُمْ فَأَقِيمُوا الصَّلَاةَ 
إن الصلاة كانت على المؤمنين كتابا موقوتا When you are among them, leading them in prayers. So let me explain this first actually. <clears throat> What's happening here is that it's talking about a specific type of Salat called Salat al-Khawf. We have this mentioned in the Qur'an, how to do it. Okay? And it has to do with time of battle where the, where, where the Mu'mineen and believers are in the battlefield and it's time for Salat for them to pray Salat in a specific way so that they are not in danger um, by the enemy, but at the same time they get in a Salat al-Jama'ah, right, which is pretty interesting. So we'll talk about that. Let's, let's go through the translation now. It's explaining how the believers are supposed to uh, perform and carry out this prayer. So, O Prophet, when you are among them, leading them in prayers, let a group of them stand with you carrying their weapons. So a group of them. You divide them into like two groups. It's not like everyone's going to pray behind you at the same time. And when they have done the prostrations, let them withdraw to the rear, then let the other group which has not prayed come and pray with you, taking their precautions and bearing their weapons, you know, holding their weapons. Okay, so what's happening here is that um, what these people are supposed to do is <clears throat> the Prophet prays, sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi, he prays one rak'ah, after the sajdas of the first rak'ah, that group is supposed to get up and, um, and continue their salat on their own quicker and finish. And you wait. And you're still in your, you just ended your first rak'ah. When they finish their second rak'ah and they end their salat on their own, they go and the other group now comes and joins you for your second rak'ah, which is going to be their first rak'ah. And same thing, after your prostrations, they're going to get up and probably end their salat um, quickly and go back to the battlefield. So the Prophet is going to be leading salat like this in Salat al-Khawf, when there's a fear in the battlefield. The faithless, okay, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, He's saying, look, these are the commands we have for you. The faithless are eager that you should be oblivious of your weapons and your baggage, whatever you have with you so that they could assault you all at once. They're waiting for you to be negligent, for you to be oblivious, to you know, attack you all at once, but there is no sin upon you if you are troubled by rain or are sick to set aside your weapons, but take your precautions. Okay, so sometimes in the battlefield, it's going to be hard for them to be holding their weapons because it's raining, because of sickness or other things. At least take precaution, it says. Maybe hold a shield, you know. But don't put everything down, don't bring your guard down. Indeed, Allah has prepared for the faithless a humiliating, a humiliating punishment. Humiliating punishment, excuse me. So when you have finished the prayers, remember Allah standing, sitting and lying down. And when you feel secure, you know, when you're not in battle, right? Establish the complete prayers. So, so in normal circumstances, when it's not battle, you know, you're supposed to establish the, the prayer just like all other times. For the prayer is indeed a timed prescription for the faithful, kitaban mawquta. Okay, so that is how in a nutshell the Salat al-Khawf is supposed to be carried out. Now what we get out of this is super important, come on, like in the battlefield God, like let us go. Let us at least, you know, not pray in these situations. No, 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 no. You will still have to pray, you'll just pray in a different way. 
that shows how important the Salat is and how important Jama'ah is. Because as we all know, Jama'ah is not even wajib, it's Mustahab. But Allah doesn't even let them off the hook when it comes to something Mustahab, which is to pray in Jama'ah. So the Salat isn't cancelled, brothers and sisters, even during battle. Jama'ah is so important that it can still be done during the battle. And one rak even if it's one rak'ah of Jama'ah, fine. Get up and pray the rest of it yourself, fine. Let go and go and let another group come, fine. But it's in Jama'ah. That is so beautiful, brothers and sisters. Now, once again, in the verses, it's like repeating, like, hey, be careful, be careful, take precaution. This doesn't mean, hey, people, just go now, do Jama'ah, Allah's going to protect you or something because you're doing something God likes. No. Don't be oblivious to your surroundings and the situation that you're in, of course. Right? But still, if you can, you have to do it like this. Okay? So when there are obligations, we will not put them all, one or all of them aside. We will try our best to um, reconcile and do all of the obligations. Especially when one of those obligations is Salat, because Salat, based on the circumstances, can be uh, performed in different ways and different forms. Right? If you can't do standing, if you're sick, you have to do sitting. If you can do half standing, half sitting, you have to do half standing, half sitting. If you can't do ruku' because you have back problems, this is how you do it. If you can't do sajda, that's how you do it, and so on and so forth. Salat is one of those things that is very, you can say, malleable. It can, uh, you can, it can ad ad adopt different forms and different styles based on your situation. And so there is no time where Salat will be cancelled. Does that not show us, brothers and sisters, the importance of Salat? How important it is. And then look at this. Allah, Allah is speaking to them about you know, the battlefield and Salat al-Khawf. But then all of a sudden, what does it do? What does Allah do? Allah takes the discussion to normal situations again. When you're not in battle, when you're secure, when you're safe, you're not in a state of khawf and fear, but you're in a state of itmi'nan and tranquility, meaning normal everyday life, what do I want you to do? What I want you to do is establish these prayers the proper way, right? Completely, not like the way you did it when you were in battle. Okay? Now it's interesting, I want to open a parenthesis here. When you go to like, um, for example, in Qom, you'll find this. People, they will come late to the Salat, sometimes Salat al-Jama'ah. So it'll be the Imam's, uh, let's say Salat al-Asr, that the Imam is praying. Um, and so what they'll do is they will start their prayer with the Imam. When the Imam goes in the tashahud of his uh, second rak'ah, they will do the tashahud quickly and change their niyyah and intention to furada and you know the normal individual prayer. And they'll get up and they'll race through rak'ah number three and rak'ah number four of their salats. And by the time the Imam finishes his tashahud, gets up for the third rak'ah, does his tasbihat arba'ah, goes to ruku', they're done with their salat, they, they, join that second, they join that salat again for their own second salat. I haven't found anywhere in Islamic law books where this is encouraged. Um, but this way they race through it. <laughs> it reminds you of Salat al-Khawf actually. So that's what it kind of looks like for those of you who have seen this happening in certain mosques sometimes. I have not seen this encouraged as I said. It might even be discouraged, I'm not sure, but um, because you're racing through it, you're not paying attention. Why not just pray 
one prayer, all four rak'ah in jama'ah, and then pray your second prayer, furada. Um, personally, that's what I like to do, I would like to do, but that's a personal preference. I'm not a marja, and I'm not saying that the maraja have discouraged this. I haven't found an encouragement of this or a discouragement of it. All right. Although something in the back of my mind says that I did see one time somewhere years ago a little bit of a discouragement of this, but that's a different story. It's not relevant right now. Uh, just see what your marja says. All right. At the same time, salat is very important, yes. But when salat is over, this is very interesting. It says, remember Allah. Remember Allah after your salat is over. Now there is a difference of opinion of what this means here. When your salat is over, remember Allah standing, sitting, laying down. Does that mean, you know, after the battle is over, you know, always try to remember Allah in every state that you're in, standing, sitting, resting? Or no, it's saying during the battlefield even, in the battlefield and during battle, what you should try to do after your salat is over, yes, is to do what? Is to remember Allah while you're on the battlefield. If you are standing and you're fighting, or you're ducking and you're fighting, or you're laying down to shoot your arrow at somebody, even there you should be remembering Allah. SubhanAllah, this is, this is, this is awesome because it reminds you of the verse, Ya kathira. There is no limit to how much one can remember Allah. Remember Allah greatly. Greatly meaning quantity-wise. Yes, remember Allah greatly. Uh, that verse is saying, kathira. Alright, and so if the prayer is this important, if dhikr of Allah is this important on all of that, what we also are getting out of all of this is that, look, still the lesson that, is, that the verse is teaching us, page number 95 is teaching us, is still be careful. Don't get all super spiritual and stuff and then forget that you're on the battlefield either. Right? This is not the lesson that we get that you should be so in, uh, entrenched in your salat that you forget what situation you're in. No, that's not acceptable either. And, uh, but finally, someone might say that, um, you know, I still don't get why we have to make sure to do salat in this way in, during, the, during battle. Of course, this is not wajib, especially during the time of after the Prophet and Imams, sallallahu alayhi wa um, you, you will have, you know, you will see that the Muslims throughout history, they haven't really done this like this. But during the Prophet's time, at least, apparently this was practiced more. And I've seen that some scholars say that even during the time of, after the Imams, and in the, in during the time of Ghaybah, it's still something that can be done. All right? And anyone who's the Imam of the Jama'ah can do something like this. Now, what I want to say though is this, that brothers and sisters, when Allah is stressing this much on salat and doing the salat like this and the dhikr and all of that, it just shows that all of this fighting that the Prophet ﷺ was doing is for the purpose of salah, is for the purpose of aqimus salah. You can't be like, we're doing all of this struggle in the way of Allah, but we're going to get lazy and slack off on our salat. All of this is for salat. That's one of the main things that Allah wants to be established on the earth is salat. And then we're going to be like, uh, no, let's, let's be careful not to, you know, let's pr protect our, let's, let's put the salat off for, you know, some other time or let's do it in another way. It's so important that even in the battlefield, and of course this reminds us of Imam, of Imam Hussain on the day of Ashura. He didn't like stop and, you know, um, excuse me, he didn't, 
continue the battle and say, you know what, you know, let's just fight. No, he stopped and when it was Salat time and he, did, he prayed that epic prayer that we've all heard of. And so, brothers and sisters, where does that put us? Okay, where does that put us and Salat? We get lazy with our Salat. We don't take it serious. We're not willing to, and I'm going to talk about myself, we're not willing to make sacrifices, you know, to eat less maybe at night, maybe to, you know, not hang out till 3 a.m. If you're going to hang out till 3 a.m., hang out till Fajr time and pray your Salat and then go to sleep. Because if you sleep and you miss it, that's a big loss. That's, that's a big deprivation, right? So, we, where does that put us? Look at how important it is. It's not just saying pray. It's saying pray in jama'ah in the battlefield. Right? But be careful, of course. In other words, if, 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 there is a, if there is a threat, okay, this might not be necessary. But when, if you can pull it off, pull it off. Okay? So, where does that put us? Really, where does that put us with our laziness when it comes to the Salat? And finally, I, want to do, I, I do want to point one more thing out that's on my heart. It's heavy. It's on my chest. I got to get it off my chest. That is that, look, the, the, the Qur'an did say pray in jama'ah, but you can sense that this is a jama'ah that's not taking forever, for God's sake. Right? The situation dictates how fast or slow you go in your salat. Please, brothers and sisters, we cannot be um, uh, more Catholic than the Pope when it comes to these matters. I'll give you an example. There's 40 people on a bus Right? This is a true story, by the way. <laughs> You're like heading off to Mashhad al-Rida. Inshallah, we all go. Imam al-Rida's uh, shrine. So you get you're in Qom and you're getting you get into the bus and you're going to Mashhad, and then people are feeling super spiritual. And so when the bus stops for a quick bathroom break and salat break, Mr. Super Spiritual Man wants to like pray 40 minute long salat because he's going to Mashhad. Bro, the, the, the bus is leaving. The people are all waiting just for you. And you're like having a, like a very intimate conversation with God. Have that intimate conversation with God on the bus for God's sake. Like take a tasbih or something with you and do dhikr. It said when you do your salat in this verse, it says when you're done with your salat, then remember Allah standing, sitting, lying down. Well, you're going to be in one of these states on the bus, standing, sitting, or lying down. So like remember Allah in that state. No one took that from you. So, the, the brothers and sisters, the situation dictates how fast or slow we go. I'm leading a Salat al-Jama'ah. In Ramadan, for example, <clears throat> everyone's hungry because the day has been 14, 15 hours. You're in Texas and it's hot and humid and, 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 and uh, you're worn out. And so, the, the, the one who's leading Salat, all of a sudden, you know, for some reason is receiving revelation as if from God in that moment. Once again, true story. There have been cases where people really have complained about how long the Salat al-Jama'ah took in the month of Ramadan. Iftar is at a certain time. And then these guys are practically breaking their, their fast 40 minutes later. Come on. It's hard as it is. So really the situation dictates how fast or slow one is supposed to uh, do things. Page number 96 of the Holy Qur'an, and this is probably going to be our last page for today. Don't accuse others of mistakes and sins you have committed. Just own up to it, man. Right? So, 
there are some t some people who, of course, you know, we talked about this before. None of us are perfect. We make mistakes and all of that. And Allah has told us the door to tawbah is open. And so we'll get to some verses that are talking about that here as well. But don't make this mistake of trying to put your mistake or sins on others. And as a result, falling in the pit of tuhmah and buhtan. That is going to be a serious problem. Verses 110 to 112 of Surah Tunisa. Whoever commits evil or wrongs himself and then pleads to Allah for forgiveness will find Allah all-forgiving, all-merciful. Wonderful. And whoever commits a sin commits it only against himself and Allah is all-knowing, all-wise. When you commit a sin, you're harming yourself. You're hurting yourself. But someone who commits an iniquity or sin and then accuses an innocent person of it, puts the blame on them, is indeed guilty of calumny and a flagrant sin. Okay, now the Arabic says, buhtanan wa ithman mubina. It's a grave sin, it is horrible. And we'll get to some hadiths in this regard of how horrible this is. Okay, now, brothers and sisters, as I said, the door to tawbah is open for all. The first verse is saying, that's, that's what it's saying. Look, don't worry about it. If you did something wrong, you did su'an. Su'an meaning you've done something wrong. No, so we have su'an in this verse and yadlim nafsa, doing, oppressing yourself, wronging yourself. So you have su, which means bad, or here it says uh, evil. And then you have wronging yourself. What's the difference between these two? Some of the scholars have said, that um, wronging yourself means uh, to commit a sin that has to do with you and no one else's, it has, not, it has nothing to do with anyone else. Su'an, meaning doing something bad or evil, means doing something that also involves someone else, hurts someone else, tramples someone else's rights. It says, look, in both cases, when you have hurt others or you've just hurt yourself with a sin of God and disobedience of God, look, do tawbah, and you will find Allah forgiving. Of course, if you have to make certain things up, you will have to do that as well. That's, that goes without saying. <clears throat> now, that's what the first verse, verse number 110 was saying. Verse number 111 says, look, and uh, this is an explanation of what some of our scholars have said. So um, the credit goes to them. Verse number 111 says, hey, verse 110 you know, made a distinction between sins, right? Sometimes you're hurting yourself, sometimes you, it's, you know, something bad and maybe hurting others. But let us let you know that anyone who commits a sin, whether it's the one that's only to, for themselves and hurts themselves or is hurting, or they're committing something that hurts others, all in all, at the end of the day, all sins equal you hurting yourself because it's disobedience of Allah and disobedience of Allah is the worst thing that you can do to yourself. Alright, so that's a second point in verse 111. 
But then verse 112 says, yo, don't ruin it though. Okay, verse 110 and 111 were saying, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it, you're fine, inshallah, tawbah, just know that you are hurting yourself and this is something you have to be careful about, all these things. Verse 112 though is like, whoa, wait a minute though, be careful, don't be dumb about things. If you committed a mistake and you hurt yourself, all of that, do your tawbah, but don't go around putting the blame on others or pointing the finger to others or associating what you've done of wrong or evil, the mistake that you've made or the sin that you've committed. Don't attribute that to others. That is buhtan. Okay, so now, brothers and sisters, look, we have, and you've probably all heard this, this idea of tuhmat of buhtan, which is different than just backbiting and ghiba. When you do ghiba, you are attributing something that is true to somebody. You're attributing to somebody. Behind their back, something that others don't know of that is true. That is big. If it's something negative, it's, it's a, if it's a flaw, it's something that you know you, you, others don't want you to know, or you would you wouldn't want others to know, and yet you're still sharing it sharing it about somebody, that's riba. That's that's crazy. It has it's very it's a very grave sin. But you know what's worse than that? Do you know what's worse than attributing something true that's negative to somebody? Is to attribute something that's false and negative to somebody. That's even worse. That's tohma. That's buhtan. They say. That is horrible. And so look at the verse. It says, If you are shooting someone with a buhtan, so it's likening it to an arrow. It's as if you shot somebody with an arrow when you do this. When you attribute something wrong to them, it's like you shot them with an arrow. The verb shooting has been used. Let me see if the, uh, um, the English has said this. No. It just says accuses. But the Arabic is saying, bihi. You shoot someone with that accusation. As if you're shooting them with an arrow. What happens? They're going to bleed to death. What's, what's the blood here? It's their reputation. You've hurt them. Big time. And so usually they don't know that you've done such a thing either. And so they don't even have, get the opportunity to explain to others, to defend themselves. And so this person's reputation goes down the drain just like that. This is crazy stuff. This is not acceptable at all. And so I'm going to share with you three hadiths before I end. The first one says, Al-Buhtanu ala al-Bari'i athqalu min jibalin rasiyatin That doing buhtan, you know what we're talking about here, when it comes to someone who is free of that buhtan, never committed that evil act that you are attributing to them and you're accusing them of, athqalu min jibalin rasiyat. This is heavier than I would say, if I get it right, the firmest, strongest mountains out there. That's how great it is. How, how strong, how, how much power does a strong mountain symbolize? A lot. If you want to destroy a mountain, it's almost impossible. It's going to take a lot of dynamite to destroy a mountain, a very big, firm mountain. All right? Here it says, Buhtan is, is worse than that, is greater than that. We seek refuge in Allah from that. 
It says another hadith. إذا تهم المؤمن أخاه إن ماث الإيمان في قلبه كما ينماث الملح في الماء. When a mu'min um, does tuhma, accuses their mu'min brother of something wrong that they did not commit, the faith melts away in their heart the same way salt is dissolved in water. When salt dissolves in water, you can't see anything there. All you see is just water until you drink that stuff. And that's bad. Once you drink it, you're like, oh my God. So it's there. It might be there, but it's not there. You, it's not visible. It's gone as if. And so your faith is as if it's gone. Last hadith. Man bahata mu'minan aw mu'minatan aw qala fihima ma laysa fihi aqamahullahu ta'ala yamul qiyamati ala tallin min nar hatta yakhruja mimma qala. So when you do buhtan of a mu'min or a mu'minah, a brother or your sister in Islam, in faith, or you say that uh, you say something about them that is not in them. What does Allah do? Allah on the day of judgment will put you on a little uh, hill of fire, right? A ball of fire, let's say. Until what you have said, yes, what you have said, the burden of what you have said eventually comes off of your shoulders. So you got to burn enough for that sin to actually like leave your body as if. That's how, how, that's how long Allah is going to keep you on the fire. Right? We can't even stand on fire for like two seconds, let alone stand on it long enough for this sin to be wiped out. And as I said, this sin, the first hadith, it said, it is bigger and more significant than the biggest, strongest, firmest mountains. Right? So brothers and sisters, these are things that we have to be very, very careful about. We have to be smart, as I said before. Be smart. If you made a mistake or you committed a sin or things like that, at least don't get yourself even in more trouble by doing something like this. We seek refuge in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma nawwir qulubana bil Qur'an wa zayyin akhlaqana bil Qur'an wa najjina minan nari bil Qur'an wa adkhilna al-jannata bil Qur'an Allahumma aj'alil Qur'an lana fi dunya qarina wa fil qabri munisan wa ala sirati nura وفي الجنة رفيقا ومن النار سترا وحجابا وإلى الخيرات كلها دليلا برحمتك يا أرحم الراحمين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته